Well, good morning. Glad you're all here. We're going to be continuing our series on salvation this morning. We've had just so many amazing messages so far from our teaching team, whether it be Femi, our Pastor Mo, Pastor Nikki, just bringing the word to us and helping us just create a theology of salvation that really sets the foundation for everything else that we believe. I mean, at the end of the day, if we can't, if we can't lay this foundation, if we can't get this part right, everything else is going to be shaky. Everything else is going to be shallow. Everything else is, is not going to be to the fullness that we could if we can't get the first things right. We have to lay the foundation. I'm so thankful for the way that our team has been able to just go through the Word and show us. I'm, I'm going to do a little bit of review and then hopefully get into some new stuff. But I want to start in Hebrews 1. And I'll just go ahead and say this. I totally dropped the ball and did not send my scriptures to our media team in time. So they may be able to get them on the screen. I don't know. But if not, it's my fault. And we'll just read it. It's like, if that's the worst thing that we have to do this morning, we'll be all right. Right? <laughs> okay. I'm going to talk today about the joy of salvation. The joy of salvation. And, and Mo used this phrase early on when we were talking about doing this series. We had a meeting, the teaching team did, and Pastor Mo just started going through things that he was thinking. And one of the phrases that he used was the joy of salvation. The joy of salvation. And that phrase really stuck with me. And as we continued to plan and we, we got our topic sorted out, I just kept going back in my mind and saying, you know, most of us have not really known a salvation that brings joy. If anything, for a lot of people, we understand a salvation that's more relief. It's just kind of the, 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 the relief of salvation instead of the joy. It's, it's just, okay, I got that out of the way. I checked that box. I did the thing that I was supposed to do. Now I, I, can, I can kind of skate by and I'm going to make it. I'll make it. And at the end, no matter what happens, you know, I, I kind of got my get out of hell free card, right? And, and, it, and it, it never goes beyond that for a lot of people. Now, you attend church here. This may not be you because we, we have a foundation here of joy and worship and, and life with the Lord and fellowship. We, we talk about these things. But still, even if you're in, in our culture, where we're not really, you know, we, we, we love the, the good news of the gospel. We love the fact that we want people to come into the family of God. We want people to be adopted. We want people to have that security of salvation to know that, man, we have eternal life with him. That's good news. But, you know, that, that's not where we stop here. We, we really want you to walk with the Lord and, and have communion with Him and have fellowship with Him and have fellowship with one another. Like, like, we've all, like we say at the beginning of every service, our mandate here is to cultivate vessels. We want you to encounter God, experience communion, and we want you to actually go out and make a difference here in this time and space, not waiting for the results of salvation or the fruit of salvation to come someday in the future when you die. Thank God for that, but there's more, Right? So when we're talking about this, a lot of people stop so short when we're talking about salvation. And I think Jesus really can show us, you know, kind of the model. You know, he, he kind of shows us what life can look like when you walk in fellowship with God. There's a verse that I've really 
gained a lot of ground in in myself. You know, when, I, when I'm starting to struggle through some things, I, I'll pray this verse a lot. We're going to look at Hebrews 1.9. Hebrews 1.9, it says, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, this verse is talking about Jesus. As you're going through, it's talking about God's supreme revelation that, you know, in times past, he spoke through the prophets. But now he speaks through his son. Jesus is the father's message to the world. He says, I'm speaking through my son. We have this example. We have the word, as John would say, we'll look at that verse later. We have the word as, as the model. You know, before there was a Bible, before we had New Testament, Old Testament, before we had a book that we could read from this morning, they were saying he's the word. He is the word of God. And now everything in the scriptures is bringing us back to the revelation of who Jesus is. So he's saying it's God's supreme revelation. This is where he speaks to us by his son, whom he's appointed heir of all things. And then he goes through and he says, well, the son is exalted above the angels. And he, he goes through and talks about the glory of the Son, Jesus Christ. And then it goes, but to the Son, he says, and that's when he goes into verse 8, and then we get to verse 9, where he says, of Jesus, because you've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness far above your companions. That verse rocked me when I first heard this because I had to stop and go, hold on a second. Jesus is overflowing with joy everywhere he goes. And I began to examine myself and I started to look around at all the people that I knew. And I started to think that most of the people that at that time I would have considered being the most close to God, the most devoted, the most faithful, you know, Those were the people that I also considered, and I'll just be completely honest with you, and this is not meant to insult anybody, and I'll explain some of this here in a minute, but the people that I saw in that light, they were often the most dry. They were the most boring, and they were constantly mad about everything. They complained about everything because everything that they were, like you you only knew what they were against, Right? They were just kind of somber. They sucked the life out of everything. Now, I know a lot of people that are really close to God that I, I consider people that I, I'm like kind of striving to be like, and they're not like that. So I'm not saying this is like everybody is like this. But if you think you know people like that, you know, they're, they're just kind of angry at the world. They see the world through, through this lens where like everything is bad, everything is wrong, so they don't enjoy anything, right? And then... I'm sitting there going, but Jesus, the Son of God, it says that he hated lawlessness, he loved righteousness, yet he was filled with the oil of joy more than anybody. And I started to wrestle with this idea of how does he do both? Because when I think of hating lawlessness, I feel like we just need to kind of be mad at the world all the time, right? Everything is bad, everything is wrong, everything is evil. And yet Jesus walked in such grace to where even sinners wanted to be around him. The worst of the worst, the people in the most dysfunction, they wanted to be around Jesus. How does he hate lawlessness, yet still be so magnetic that everybody wanted to be around him? And I started to wonder this, and there, you know, there's, there's a number of answers. You know, we, we could talk about a lot of reasons why, and you know, 
my goal is not to give a comprehensive list of why Jesus was anointed with the oil of joy far above his companions, but there's some things that I think that we can see in his life. Now, the question is why? How? You know, what, what, was, what was this life that he was living in? We start reading through the scriptures, and you see all these phrases. You see, you know, joy unspeakable, full of glory, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And I've challenged myself with this, and I'm going to challenge you this morning. You need to look yourself in the mirror and evaluate. Am I walking in joy unspeakable, full of glory? Am I walking in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? Can, can someone look at me and say, he or she, they are anointed with the oil of gladness more than anybody I know? You know, what if, what if somebody were to look at you at work or at your school or wherever you spend the majority of your time? Would, they, would the people that are around you that spend the most time around you, would they go, man, he, he's anointed with the oil of gladness far above anybody else I know. He, he's the happiest person I've ever met. Would they say that about you? Now, when I said that to myself, I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> if I'm being honest, absolutely not. You know, we get busy, we get distracted. There's things, I'm not suggesting some kind of utopic thing where everything is just awesome all the time. But just in general, do you walk with a joy in your life? And I want to tell you, if you're not, if you can't answer that with just a resounding yes, I'm absolutely sure. I want to I contend with you that maybe we've stopped short. Maybe we have not received the fullness of what God wants. It's unfortunate that many never experience this joy. Most people don't experience the joy of salvation. They experience the relief of salvation. Whew, I got it. I made it, right? You, you start hearing these phrases, um, you know, that, that I, I want to make it. You know, we write songs about it. Like, you know, I've got to make it to heaven somehow. You know, we, have, we have this weird view where it's like, I, I've got to make sure that I'm right. I've got to make sure that no matter what I, whatever I do, I, I'm right with God. And he's not, he, you know, he's not going to overlook me. I'm not going to miss it. You know, we could even talk about some eschatology where you, know, you wonder, oh my gosh, I don't want to be left behind you know, or, or whatever. And I'm, I'm not going to get into that topic today, but it's like we, we have this fear. It's like this uncertainty that we kind of live with that creates this anxiety that's sort of just resting over your shoulders. For a lot of people, they don't ever get, they don't ever break free from it. They live with this constant cloud over their head wondering, have I done enough? Am I going to make it? You know, and for other religions, that, or really for any religion, that's the question is what happens after we die? And how do I make sure that in my lifetime I do whatever it takes to get there? And what separates Christianity is that now our God doesn't require us to get to him. He actually came to us. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And we're going to look at that. But think of these songs. Think of these phrases. Like, I, I want to make heaven. I don't want to miss heaven. I don't want to be uh, passed by. I don't want to, to miss this. And we, we live with that kind of over our shoulder. And that clouds our entire life. Now you're constantly left questioning. How can you experience the joy of salvation if there's no security, if there's no foundation? You know, how good would your marriage be if you were just constantly wondering if your spouse was faithful? If you just constantly had to walk through life wondering, where are they? Who are they talking to? What are they doing? What do I not know? Can you imagine what your marriage would be like? If you didn't have that assurance 
Think about it. And when we start thinking about the joy of salvation and people that constantly live with this anxiety, that you know, this assumed separation from God, it's no wonder we don't experience joy. Most have not experienced peace in salvation. They've experienced a striving. There's no rest involved in their salvation because they're constantly going and doing and trying to make that next step to make sure that they have, again, checked all those boxes, right? We need to recover a gospel that's actually good news. That's actually good news. Think about you go out and you start to share the gospel. And I've seen this and I've done it. And you start trying to tell people the good news of the gospel, yet your whole life is negative. You're the person that's complaining about everything. You're the person that's, that's kind of down all the time. You're constantly struggling with depression and anxiety and dysfunction in your life. And then you're going to go tell someone, hey, I want you to come over to my side. And they're going to look at your life and go, eh, I don't know. Right? We've got to experience joy. And many in the church, they have such a weak salvation. And they have such a shallow view of who God is that they can never break free from that fog. Now, this, this idea of enough, you know, we, we wonder, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? And some of you have asked that question, you know, what, did I say the prayer right? Like I used, that was my question. To, you know, we, we were told, you, know, you have to repeat after me, repeat the prayer, confess with your mouth, believe, you know, then you'll be saved. And if you deny me in front of men, I'll deny you in front of my father. And these were things I wrestled with. Like, did I say the right thing? What if the guy that I answered, what if the guy that I repeated, he had me repeat the wrong thing? What if I didn't say the right prayer, right? It's, it's silly to think about, but these are like really challenging questions for a teenager. You know, when I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, what if I, you know, I'm just going to answer every altar call forever, just in case, right? Like, I'm just going to make sure, you know what I mean? Like, it creates such an anxiety on our, in our internal world. There's such a storm going on that every time you make a mistake, you wonder, was that the one? Was that the straw that broke the camel's back? Every time I said the wrong thing, thought the wrong thing, made a wrong decision, it sends you into another tailspin. Or maybe I'm the only one. Maybe, maybe you guys are sitting here wondering what I'm talking about, but I don't think so. You know, one thing goes wrong and you're, you're for weeks punishing yourself trying to make it right again. I make a mistake, I've got to make sure I feel this one. I'm, I'm going to just inflict serious pain on myself. You know, I'm going to pray more. I've got to fast more. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to, you know, whatever it is for you, you start there and you go, I'm going, to, I'm going to put myself in spiritual timeout for like three weeks to make sure I get this right. And it's not the gospel. Jesus doesn't talk about that. Now, you, you see this going on and on. And it's, it happened from the very beginning. Right? We go back to Genesis 1. Adam falls. Adam and Eve fall. What's the first thing they do? They hide from God. I want you to think about this question. Did the fall change God? Did the fall change God? Was God different the day after the fall than he was the day before the fall? The only one that changed was Adam. Adam's walking in the cool of the day in perfect fellowship and union. He's taking dominion. He's taking authority over the earth and he's, he's serving and he's, he's walking with God and then he falls and then immediately he goes to hide and he tries to cover himself and, he, and he's there. 
God didn't change. And what most of us will do is we'll, we'll do the exact same thing, even today. We mess up and we go try to hide. We slip up and we try to distance ourselves and you're hiding behind the bushes and what you think is, well, God's not going to, God's not going to deal with me right now. God's ashamed at me. He's mad at me. He's distant. What's the first thing God does though? He goes and looks for Adam. Adam's hiding in the bushes and God starts walking through the garden saying, Adam, where are you? Because he was the same father the day after Adam fell as he was the day before. You see how we do this? You, you make the mistake and you go hide in the bushes and you've created all these false assumptions about who God is in your own mind that God is upset with you, God, God is done with you, God's going to discard you. I was even reading in Psalm 51. This is kind of the, the really well-known, creating me a clean heart of God, renew a right spirit in me. We know that verse. Some of us know it really well. <laughs> and I got to reading through this, and David, of course, David's just blown it big time, right? And he starts to pray this prayer, and it's an awesome prayer. But the thing that caught me is, is this phrase, and of course, because of the title of my message today, I started looking this up. He says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And I started to wonder, why is it that he would have gone from you know, being the man after God's own heart, dancing before the Lord, you know, moving the Ark of the Covenant where it needed to be, and he messes up, and suddenly he has no joy in salvation. And if you read it, you start to see the language that David's using. He's saying, please don't take your presence from me. Please don't hide your face from me. Please don't take your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. What was it that removed that joy from him? It was the false assumption that God would, that God would abandon him. Because David was operating under this assumption of separation that God does abandonment. He then has to say, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation because I've got to be honest, I'm not so sure you're still there. And I'm wondering, now that I've blown this, if you're even going to be there for me. So God, please, don't take your presence from me. Don't take your spirit away from me. Don't hide your face from me. Restore to me my joy. And we have no model for that because even when Adam failed sending the entire human race into a tailspin of sin, God still says, I'm coming after you. I'm still going to look for you. And we see right after that, that's when he says, a seed will be born. I'm sending a seed, Adam. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to leave you in your darkness. I'm not going to leave you in your dysfunction. Even though you just had an epic failure, I've already got a plan in place. That's why Paul in Ephesians 1, he would say something like this. He says, and we who were chosen before the foundation of the world, Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. But hear that. Ephesians 1, he says, you who were chosen before the foundation of the world. Hold on. Before Adam fell, he already chose you. I heard, I heard a, a guy say one time, he says, you were found in Jesus long before you were lost in Adam. And you're still trying to figure out how to get out of Adam when Jesus found you even before that. And you spend your whole life struggling trying to get out of that darkness when Jesus was there all along saying, I've already, I've already found you. You see how this creates this anxiety in us. You know, I said last time that I was here that, you know, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father by me. But for most of us, our gospel has been no one avoids the Father except by me. 
We, we've painted this God, this, this, you know, this, this distant figure somewhere that's angry. You know, I, I like to use the phrase, he, he's somewhere in the vast distance of a disapproving heart. You know, thank God for Jesus, but this, this God figure, he's, he's out there, he's mad, he's angry, he's very upset because of Adam. He's very upset because of sin, and he's going to punish someone for it. And you either get to, you know, escape through Jesus, you know, or you're going to be left to feel the entire wrath of God. And we create this wrathful God. You know, Jonathan Edwards, he preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I was reading the other day, someone switched it and said it was actually God in the hands of angry sinners. We have been so subject to the wrath of our own hearts because of our sinful nature that we projected that on God ourselves. And we created a wrathful God that was never there in the first place. So then I come back to my question, did God change because of the fall? Or was he the same father from the very beginning? Was he the same father from before the foundation of the world? If we can start to get past some of these ideas, I think we can start to hear the truth and the truth can set us free. Now, this is where I need to kind of review some of the things that we said last time because I believe through Jesus in the incarnation, which is a fancy word for Jesus putting on a body, God became flesh. We, we see a really interesting picture. Now, go with me to John 1. John 1, I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now jump down to verse 14. John 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So John comes, and, and, and there's some interesting background. John was the last person to write a gospel. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they had already written their gospel. John actually didn't write his gospel until very late in life. He, he was an old man. He had passed several generations before he actually wrote this. So the other gospels had already been circulating. And if you read church history, John didn't even want to write a gospel. It was some of his disciples that were urging him, like, hey, we're hearing what you're saying. You've got to write this down. And what John was basically saying is they already did it. So if you notice, if you read through the Gospels, you know, we, we would call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic Gospels because they're almost identical. They tell the same stories. Um, even some places, they're in the same order. They're very similar. But then John's Gospel is completely different. He took a different path. And what you'll see is, if you go through the history, what happens is, is John, later in life, he started to see some of these heresies pop up. He started to see some of these groups, uh, one which was called the Arians, and then he saw a, a lot of the Gnostics, or Gnosticism, which you, you may be familiar with that term from Paul's writings. And what he started to notice is they were trying to strip Jesus of his divinity. Jesus was a man, but he wasn't God. He may have been highly favored by God, perhaps used by God, certainly a good man, certainly a prophet, certainly a very good teacher, but not God. 
And they, they started to break some of this down. And then John said, okay, I've had enough. I've got to write, I've got to write some of this. I've got, to, I've got to get us back on the path. And then John starts his gospel much differently. So if you read the synoptics, what you'll see is specifically like Matthew will start with a genealogy. You know, Adam begat this, begat that, begat this. And he goes through the line and then he gets all the way to Jesus. And what he's doing is he's establishing the messianic line to say this was the one that was prophesied. Like we saw Isaiah say the, the root of Jesse, you know, so he connects him to Jesse and then he goes through the, the different family line. And he says, so, so now we know Jesus is the son of God. Because we can go from Adam all the way. And then John says, well, that's true, but it's not true enough. We need to go before that. And then he starts his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. You see, they were trying to strip Jesus of his divinity. And what that does is, is it actually then completely destroys the Trinity, which is one of the foundational things that separates us from other religions because we have a triune God that dwells together in perfect unity, other-centered love, and then has shared that kind of life with us. And then what's important to that is what I said earlier. Because of the Trinity and because Jesus was with God from the very beginning, we now have a God that crossed the divide to come to us rather than requiring us to cross the divide to come to him. I used to say Jesus was the bridge. Jesus was the bridge. And we, we had different like graphics and stuff. You see Jesus is the bridge and you walk across the bridge and you get to heaven. Yeah, that could be true. Now I see Jesus annihilated the gap completely. He sucked that chasm within himself and said, now I'm right here. I've joined myself with humanity forever. Jesus steps out of perfect fellowship with Father, Son, and Spirit in the Trinity for all of eternity before the foundation of the world. And out of that circle of fellowship steps into time and space, puts on a body. And then John says, then the word, that same word that was with God for all eternity, not just a man. Not just a favored man, not just a prophet, the word God put flesh on and we beheld his glory. That's so important for many, many reasons that I don't have enough time to explain why it's important. But here's, here's the point I want to get across. Number one, God came to you. But number, number two, God was a father before he was a creator. God was a father before he was creator. What does that mean for you and me? That means that before he made Adam, and certainly before Adam fell, then he was a father. Because he dwelled together in father, son, and spirit, in perfect unity, other-centered love. And it was out of that fellowship that they said, you know what? This relationship is so good, we've got to share it with somebody. So then Genesis will tell you, in the beginning, God, which by the way is actually Believe it or not, the, the Hebrew word Elohim is plural, which is very interesting. In the beginning, God, this triune Father, Son, and Spirit, stepped into, in, into space and said, this, this null and void thing, we're going to actually dream up something. We're going to put a plan in here. We're going to say, let us make man in our image. We're going to put a man in our own image right there so that we can share this life with. And then from that place... You know, we, we follow the, the order, man falls, the seed is going to be born before the foundation of the world, the lamb is slain, this was the plan all along, so that then Jesus would put on a body, step into time and space as a man, 
representing both parties as the mediator and then go through, die, resurrect, ascend as a man and then sit at the right hand of God again as a man so that now there's a human being represented in the Trinity. That means you are represented this morning right now in that fellowship. So what's important is that from the very beginning, he was a father. Now look at this. Go to 1 John. John wrote this around the same time that he wrote his gospel, actually. I'm going to read it pretty quick. You can turn there if you want. If not, you can just listen. 1 John 1 through 4 starts very similar. That which was from the beginning, okay? The Word was with God and the Word is God. Okay, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the Word of life. That life was manifest. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Watch this. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. So what John is trying to do is in all of his writings, he's constantly referring back to the incarnation. That God dwelt together forever in Father, Son, and Spirit. And then they step into eternity or step into time and space as a man. So that now there's a mediator that's fully God and fully man. And you see the Arians and the Gnostics and all these people are fighting John on this and fighting his... His disciples, And if you read even the people that sat under John, you've got Athanasius who wrote on the incarnation and wrote all these things. You, you have Irenaeus saying, and God became like us so that we could then become like him. Everybody that was around John was hearing this constantly every day, every day. John just hammering this because he knew it was critical. And he says, it's that your joy may be full, that we begin to understand that God was father, son and spirit. And that from that place, he sucked that gap together within himself. He put on a body, made himself face to face with us so that we handled him. We saw him. We heard him. And now we have joy because we have been brought into fellowship with him. What did he say? Um, That our fellowship is with the father and with his son and with each other. So Father, Son, and Spirit have perfect fellowship together, and then they decide to share. That's why if you read John 17, Jesus is saying things like, Father, the same glory which, you ha- which I had with you before the foundation of the world, I have given to them. I have given, because Jesus is a sharer. Now you've got to begin to ask yourself, why did Jesus come? After you've heard these verses, do you honestly think that we can stop at Jesus came so that you can repeat a prayer at the end of a service, you can struggle through life like everybody else, and then you can die and finally go to heaven. Does that sound like your joy would be full? That's the relief of salvation. I heard it said like this, if, you, if, if you're waiting on the fruit of your salvation for when you die, then Jesus didn't save you, death does. 
Think about this. If you have to struggle through life just like everybody else, whether they know Jesus or not, if there's no difference, if there's no fruit, if there's no joy, if there's no peace, if there's no righteousness, if there's no rest, and you are just like everybody else that goes through life, but when we die, it's different. That doesn't sound to me like joy would be full. and that does, that, Then all this other stuff we're reading doesn't make sense to me. There must be more. So here's a couple things, and this is some review too. Jesus came to introduce us to the Father. So we're not going to go to it, but John 14. They come to him and they say, Jesus, we keep hearing you talk about this Father. You know, if you, if you read through John, I said this last time, in the Old Testament alone, God is referred to as a Father, I think, 15 times. And every time it's never personal. It's God's the Father of Israel, the Father of this. Jesus refers to God as a Father over a hundred times in the book of John alone. And most of the time, it's my father, my father. So this was mind-blowing to them. This was something they had never heard before in their life, where Jesus is coming and saying, this, you know, Elohim, Yahweh, this God that's so distant from you, he's a father. Not only that, he's my father. They'd never heard anyone talk like this. You know, this is the God that they know from Sinai when Moses comes down and his face is glowing so, fat, so much that they have to cover him before someone dies. You know, the priests are going before with bells tied around their ankles in case they die and then they can be drug out with ropes. Okay, this is the God that they knew. And then Jesus is going to call that God Father. And then the Bible would say no one can see God and live. And then Jesus says, so what God did... We came up with this idea where we would make ourselves just like you so that then we could become, we could come in a form that wouldn't kill you so that then, like John said in John 1, of his fullness we can receive and not die. Is that not amazing? So he starts to, to show him a father. And in John 14, they said, we keep hearing you talk about this father. Can you show us the father? He says, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. This is, a, this is a, a funny phrase, I know, but it'll get the point across. We, we, you know, is Jesus God? Well, the real question could be, is God Christ-like? For most of us, he's not. He's, again, he's wrathful, he's angry, he's destructive, he's, he's kind of bipolar, right? He, he's, he's a little schizophrenic, he, he, he's, he can't be trusted, you, you can't get close to him. But Jesus, he's different. And what Jesus says is, no, forget everything you know about God that you haven't seen in my life. I am the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Every single thing that is found in this God, in Yahweh, and Elohim, is found in me because I'm the Word made flesh. And I've come to make myself known to you in fullness. And then John got it, and he says, okay, of his fullness we've received. No one else was ever able to say that before. Elijah, I'll show myself to you, but you only get a glimpse. You only get a glimpse, because if I show you my fullness, you'll die. So in mercy, he says, I'll only give you a glimpse. If anything, the priests are allowed to go in because they've dedicated their entire lives to being able to do that, but no one else can. And then Jesus comes, and then John is able to say with confidence, well, now we know of his fullness we've received. If you don't understand the gospel, that sounds arrogant. Can you imagine being a Jew Generation after generation after generation, my great-great-great-grandfather, you know, he, he crossed the Red Sea. They were there in Exodus. They were there, you know, and they were there when Joshua was leading them. And, and they start going through, and then John goes, yeah, I understand. Of his fullness, we've received. 
And, and they're going, well, y'all are just this brand new group of people that they're calling Christians. We're not even sure what you believe. And then you're going to tell us that you've received the fullness of our God? And he goes, yes, because Jesus is God. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The Word made flesh. This Word which was from the beginning, which we've handled, which we've seen with our eyes. This, this is the God that you've been waiting for. So he came to reveal the Father. Not only that, um, Jesus came to bring us into relationship with the Father. So again, we have that God coming to us, not expecting us to come to him. Now, there's more to be said about that, but I'm, I'm going to move on. Now, not only that, Jesus, and, and I promise I'm going to get back to the joy thing, because you're going to see how this relates. Jesus came to unite spiritual and material. Or as I like to say it, he, he blurred the line between secular and sacred. And this is where the Gnostics came in. And this is why they could not deal with what John was saying, what Athanasius was saying, what Irenaeus was saying. is because they were saying, the world is evil. Everything in the world is evil. We're evil. And it deserves to be destroyed. Because of that, there is therefore no way possible that the God that we know is holy and other than would join himself to this world. And they couldn't, they couldn't reconcile that. So when John and Athanasius and Irenaeus and Polycarp and all these people were coming and saying, no, God became flesh. God joined himself with the material world. And then they're quoting Paul, who in Ephesians 1 10 said, in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he brought all things both in heaven and in earth together within himself. Or when Jesus would say, and on earth as it is in heaven. They couldn't, they couldn't handle that because there's no way that a holy God would unite himself with such a fallen world. And what John was trying to say is, yeah, but because of Jesus binding himself to this world, he did what we couldn't do, which was restore that back to what was intended for it in the very beginning. And now if you will step into that relationship, you then can take your place as an ambassador who's been given authority like the first Adam was to take authority over the land to bring it back into the fullness of what it was intended to be. So they just couldn't wrestle with this, and they were trying to see this. Now, you may not realize it, but a lot of our lives have been influenced by the Gnostics. Because we have such a hard time not separating secular and sacred. Okay, so this is sacred, but you don't see you rocking your kids to sleep at night as sacred. Because you're not reading your Bible and praying in tongues while you're doing it. Right, you, you may be a teacher, and you know that's great, but since I'm not teaching the Bible, it's not actually sacred. I may be just teaching math, uh, so that's secular, but this is sacred. Me holding this microphone, and as long as I'm quoting scriptures to you, this is sacred. If I go you know, try to you know, tell someone how to just make their life better without using scripture, well, that's, you know, that's secular, right? We see these dividing lines everywhere. So we, that's when you see people that if you get really excited about God, they say, well, you should go into ministry, which means you should be the one standing behind a pulpit one day. Not, you know, forget all those dreams you had about being in politics or being a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or whatever. If you're really serious about God, you've got to quit all that, and you need to get serious and get into the ministry, right? We've seen that. So 
we constantly divide these lines without realizing that maybe God actually has something to say in fourth grade math class. Maybe God actually wants some lawyers that have been brought into fellowship with Father, Son, and Spirit to represent someone in a court and actually show people what a real judge looks like. You know, that, that, that God was the one who, who was the judge that just violently pursued everything that would separate him from his people. And he says, well, maybe I'll put that same passion inside of someone and they'll become a judge and they'll be, you know, a signpost. They'll be a testimony to everyone else pointing people to me. And they're just, you know, they've got a gavel in their hand and a, and a robe but they're doing it through the fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, maybe, maybe you work at a warehouse. Maybe, like I said, you may be a stay-at-home mom. I don't know. But you've got to quit separating secular and sacred. And go, well, what they're doing over there is important, but I'm just doing dishes at home. I'm just a mother to my children. I'm just a father who goes to work, comes home, mows my yard, plays with my kids, and does it all over again the next day. That's not that important. That's not significant. And what Jesus did is he put on flesh bound himself to the world in the material sense to the point where now every single thing has significance that through jesus heaven and earth have been brought together so that now there is no separation so now ultimately in his eyes it doesn't matter if you're preaching the gospel or you're just rocking your kids to sleep it's all worship to him as long as you're doing it in fellowship of father son and spirit I heard a story, Baxter Kruger tells a story, he's one of my favorites, and he says he was, he's a theologian, studied all over the place, written books, volumes of theology, you know, just super smart guy, right? He was on a plane, and he says, this guy comes on, and he looks like Indiana Jones. He's got the satchel, he's got the hat, you know, the leather, he's doing all the stuff, right? And the guy sits down next to him, and he says, well, what do you do? And he goes, well, I'm a botanist. And I've spent a month in the Caribbean studying plants that are going extinct, and I'm trying to raise awareness for it because if these plants go extinct, then we're going to have all these environmental issues. And he said that for a solid hour to an hour and a half, this guy just goes on and on about these plants. He knows their Latin names. He knows what's going to happen if they die. He knows how to keep them from dying. He knows where they came from. He knows what they do. He knows their root, the stem, the leaf, the seed. He knows where they live, the climates that they like. And he goes through all of this just on. He's showing him on a napkin. He's writing all these. And he finally finishes, and he finds out that this guy's a theologian. And he goes, well, I guess since you're a theologian, you probably want to argue with me about evolution. And he looks at him and goes, to be honest with you, I don't really care that much about evolution. I want to know where you got this love for plants. Because you're a grown man, and you just spent two hours on a napkin explaining to me about plants. Because did you just take a good botany pill this morning? Was your mom a botanist? Is your dad a botanist? Like, where does this come from? This is not normal. And the guy goes, well, I don't know. I guess I didn't really think about that. And he goes, well, I know exactly where it came from. He pulls out his own napkin, and he draws three circles that interlap. And then he puts a dot right in between where they all interlap. He goes, this is Father, Son, and Spirit. And this dot represents you. And maybe, just maybe, God loved his creation so much that he then wanted to share that love for creation with someone. And he put it inside of you and said, I need somebody to care enough to go learn and study and go spend a month away from their family in the Caribbean studying plants so that then they can not go extinct and my creation can be preserved, maybe that's where your love for plants came from. And he goes, well, 
Honestly, I hadn't thought of that. Why has no one told me that? He goes, that is the gospel. That is what happened because Jesus put on flesh and showed what it meant to actually be human. Jesus defines what it means to be human now. And he says, I have taken you. I really care about plants. So I'm going to put that love for plants in you. I'm going to share my heart with you in that thing. And I want you to go out and I want you to make a difference in the world, studying plants and preserving plants and raising awareness about plants. Now, what we would do is go, well, if you really want to get serious, you've got to forget all that plant stuff and you need to go to seminary. You need to go teach a Sunday school class. Right? You, you can't spend a month in the Caribbean because where are you going to go to church? Right? And what he's saying is, I have now brought all those things together where there is no dividing line anymore between secular and sacred. I don't see this as more important than that as long as you're doing it with me. We can experience a vibrant life when we start to see that all things were created for him and are sustained by him. We see that phrase throughout the scripture, that Jesus was the creator and sustainer of all things. That means right now you're literally breathing Christological air whether you believe in him or not. He's sustaining this very moment. Think about that. You may just be driving a forklift, but he's sustaining that moment and he's in it. And he'll talk to you in that moment. And he'll work through you. And you can do that together. And suddenly you start to experience a vibrancy that you didn't have when you were just driving a forklift. Right? When you, when you were just being a parent. When you were just being that teacher. Being that accountant. Being that whatever. It, it, you can then begin to experience a life with God. Do you see the vibrancy that comes with that? There's no secular and sacred. And this is where I kind of go back to that. Or I said, you know, growing up, it was like the most spiritual people that I knew were the ones that saw the world as the most destructive. Think about like the people that you know that are constantly arguing about the Bible. They just always want to argue. They always want to point things out. Well, what about this? What about that? You notice that they always fight to preserve the most negative things. They're like the least hopeful people, right? Uh, you know, I, I went to school with some of these people. We, we would write, a, we'd write papers and we'd have to read it and critique each other. And you, you would write something like, oh, I, I believe you know, God wants revival on the earth. God wants so many people to be saved and he wants his kingdom to be established. You'd write just this awesome, like, hope-filled thing and somebody would be like, well, what about this verse? I don't really think that. And I remember Brianna posted on Facebook one time. I was like, you know, Jesus is actually supposed to make your life better. You're supposed to be happier and more at rest and more at peace because you have Jesus. And somebody said, well, I actually don't believe that. I think and they named all the scriptures that they believe meant that their wife was actually going to be worse because of Jesus, right? Where does this come from? And yet Jesus is our living hope, the one that's anointed with the oil of gladness far above his companions. Everyone wants to be around Jesus. They say he's the desire of all nations. Everybody wants a king like Jesus. And then we start to get in this fog in our own head where we go, well, everything must be bad. I must be mad about everything. <laughs> you, know, I'm, you know, I'm in sackcloth and ashes all the time while everyone else in the world is having a good time. And because of this, you've got people that are leading our world right now that have no clue who God is. And we get frustrated, but when, the, when kids are coming up and they start showing passion for God and they want to go you know, be a scientist or they want to go be a chemist or they want to go start a business, we go, yeah, but if, if you really want to get serious, you got to stop this and you got to go into the ministry and you got to do this and we got to do this and we've got to be poor and sad and broken and sick all the time because we're Christians. 
right? And then meanwhile, Bill Gates and Elon Musk are starting businesses and ruling the world. Think about it. Maybe this God that's so creative and so strategic wants to put ideas in you to where you can go start a business that has nothing to do with church, but you're doing it in the Spirit, you're doing it with Him, and you start to experience the joy of doing life in His presence. I want to kind of close with this. Jesus was fully living out His Sonship before our very eyes. And most of us miss that part of Scripture because we're trying to get Him to the cross so fast. We're so sin conscious, we're so law conscious that we've got to get him to the cross so that he can die and rise again so that we can go to heaven when we die that we miss this whole anointed with the oil of gladness thing. We miss this vibrancy that's in his life. Jesus steps out of a perfect relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. And he comes down to us and somehow manages to maintain that relationship even through his day-to-day life. So he's just running a carpentry business. He's just working with his dad. He's just helping his mom. But then he just kind of walks in this relationship, and it says he grows in favor with God and with man. So even, And even from early on, he's a 12-year-old, and they're astonished by Jesus because there's just this way about him. It's because he was fully living out his sonship. Imagine how your life would look differently if you didn't have that fog of anxiety over your head all the time. If you weren't constantly wondering if you were doing the right thing or not. This has been an important verse for Brianna and I. It says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. What if I just live my life and I do the best I can and even if I make the wrong turn, goodness and mercy just follow me there and God blesses it there anyways. You might have decisions right now where you're going, well, should I start this business or should I stay where I'm at? Should I stay at this job or should I go to this next job? Should I have kids? Should I not have kids? Should I get married? Should I not get married? Those are important decisions. And I want to encourage you to use wisdom. I want you to pray about it. I want you to get counsel. Those are all truths of the scripture. But I also want you to have confidence to know that you're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. You've been brought into sonship. And if you just live in the fullness of that sonship, goodness and mercy will just follow you. You know, David, God says, go to Judah. And David goes to Ziklag. He does the exact opposite of what God told him to do. I mean, just blatant compromise. He goes to Ziklag, which was a land of the Philistines, which can you imagine David, who killed Goliath, who toted his head around in celebration, who has his sword on his back still, walks into a Philistine country. I mean, he's talking about a target on your back. God says, go to Judah. I need you to go to Judah. He goes to Ziklag. David gets in all kinds of trouble, but then God helps him and he gets out. And in Psalm 18, something amazing happens. David starts to write and says, yeah, but God delivered me because he delighted in me. So David is living in absolute, outright, conscious compromise. He purposely disobeys God, goes somewhere else, goes into a land, gets himself in trouble, and then still has the confidence to repent for it, which is important, 
Don't, don't miss that part. But repents for it, but then says, yeah, but God delivered me because he delights in me. Even in my dysfunction, even in my compromise, he still delights in me because he's living out the fullness of his sonship. So Jesus gives us a model, not just a model for how we live. He gives us a model for the relationship that you can have in this life with Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, what's so awesome about this is you start to see this exchange of I and you and you and me and I and my Father and us and you. And if you love us, we'll come in and we'll make our home with you. And Jesus starts going through all these things. Jesus came to show us what was possible for man and how they could connect with God. Now, that's not as mind-blowing for us, but again, when you've grown up in a temple era where they're doing sacrifices and they've got priests and they've got these things and they've got our, you know, God out there, and then Jesus says, no, this is actually how you can live. It was completely revolutionary for them. So then Jesus comes, and this is where we see the gospel really come in play. Jesus comes as the mediator. So they create man. They're there. Adam falls. Jesus knows Adam's never going to be able to recover from that himself. Adam is never going to be able to muster up enough faith or enough whatever to be able to recover from what he just did. So what Jesus does is he says, well, I'll put on a body. I'll become Adam. I will go in the fullness of my sonship and I will say a yes that's stronger than anything that he could have come up with himself and I'll just say yes for him. And then I will die as a man I'll resurrect as a man, I'll ascend as a man, and I'll take my seat as a man so that then Adam can now be represented in this fellowship again. And the beauty of this is we see him as fully God and fully man. He's the mediator, which means he has to fully be able to represent both parties. He has to be fully God or fully man. If he's only God, his sacrifice is actually insufficient for us because it's great that he died as God. That doesn't do anything for me. And if he's only a man and he dies, it's inspirational maybe, but it doesn't do anything for me unless God does it for me. So Jesus represents both. He comes as a man, dies as a man, resurrects as a man, ascends as a man, and is seated as a man forever. So it wasn't a a, a brief moment in time that he put on a body. He became a man forever. So Jesus now represents man on the cross. He represents man on the tomb. He represents man in his ascension. And now forever, like I said, there's a man representing you before God. And when you die, you'll get to look eye to eye with a man that has sympathy for you because he endured everything that you endured. And you'll get to look face to face with him. And in tenderness, he'll wrap his arms around you and say, I know exactly what you went through. You're not going to have to stare into some inapproachable light. You'll look eye to eye with a man. That's good news. Now, the beauty of this is that we don't do anything to earn this. So that goes back to this Enough thing. I promise I'm almost done. You don't have to do enough to accomplish this. You don't have to somehow find your way through life so that you do the right thing, say the right thing. Jesus did it for you. You just come in in faith and agreement and say, I'll receive what you already did for me. And he did it for you, which here's what it means. This is going to be like the most complex thought I've given you all day. This is two, two degrees in Bible college for me to get here. You can't screw this up. You can't screw it up. 
Do you know the peace that that can give you if you just live life that way? Now, your, your sirens go off going, well, you're just telling people they can do whatever they want. You're telling people they can live however they want. I promise you, anybody that's actually seen Jesus is not thinking that. Jesus did it for us, which means I can't screw this up. Jesus would have to deny himself in order to deny you because he became a man, which means he joined himself with you forever. He would have to deny himself to deny you. Now, the first Adam falls. The last Adam comes and recovers it. And here's just this thing that's just been messing with me so bad. Why is it that we put more faith in the result of what the first Adam did than we do in what happened with the last Adam? We'll sit there and say, well, yeah, absolutely. Every person, whether they realize it or not, whether they believe it or not, no matter if they're atheist, agnostic, indifferent, whatever, they were affected by Adam. We can all agree with that. But then you start saying, well, now it's possible for every single person to be affected by the last Adam. We make Adam the hero. We make Adam's fall stronger than Jesus' resurrection. And then we're constantly trying to fight our way out of Adam. And Jesus is saying, I've already conquered that in you. I've already destroyed that in you. I've already undid everything Adam did. And then you wrestle through life striving with that anxiety and that fog over your head wondering, have I got out of Adam yet? And Jesus said, well, Paul said, when he died, all died. When he rose, all rose. And now you can stand in confidence this morning saying, Adam died on the cross. And the last Adam rose from the grave. And he ascended and sat down and brought me with him and set me in his lap. And that's where you belong forever. And you don't have to wonder this morning. You don't have to struggle with this and wrestle with these ideas and this anxiety. He did it for you. And he wrapped you in within himself and he brought you before the Father. And now all you have to do is turn the lights on. You know, Pastor Mo preached on the Samaritan where, you know, the, the, the guy was lost. He was, you know, on the side of the road hurt and people passed him. And then the Samaritan came and picked him up, brought him to the inn, took care of him, bandaged his wounds, gave him bread and wine, and then paid his way. We talked about this in our home group. What we would like, what most of our gospel would mean is Jesus walks up and says, well, do you believe that I'm the good Samaritan? He goes, yes, I do believe. Uh, he goes, well, repeat this prayer after me. He repeats it. He goes, okay. Now, if you can figure out how to get out of that hole and get to the end, I'll pay for you. You know, Jesus leaves the 99 and goes after the one. He says, okay, I found you. Here's a map. If you can get back, I'll let you in. I've opened the gate for you. If you can get back, I'll let you in. You know, the prodigal son goes out and you know, it's almost like the father is behind a locked door and the prodigal son knocks on the door and he says, what's the password? Did you say the prayer? Did you, you know, confess me before men? You know, otherwise, I can't let you in. Did you say this? Did you actually pray the sinner's prayer? Did you go through Romans Road? Did you do this? Did you memorize enough Bible verses? Did you fast enough? Did you pray enough? The father stands on the porch goes after him and brings him back and puts a robe on him and a ring on him. He goes after the 99, he picks up that lost sheep, he throws it over his shoulder and he brings it back. Jesus did it for you. Jesus did it for you. I don't want to have enough more faith in the first Adam than I do in the last Adam. You spend your whole life struggling with what the first Adam did instead of your whole life celebrating what the last Adam did. Brianna, can you go ahead and come up? 
will experience joy and salvation when we understand this Father that was not changed or altered one bit because of your fall and your mistake. You know, even on the cross, we have this idea that God sort of abandoned His Son. Maybe you've heard the, the sermons where we'll say, well, God looked away. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So even on the cross, we have this idea that God does abandon me. And if he'll abandon Jesus, he'll absolutely abandon me. If you go back, Jesus was quoting Psalm 22, where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's some people in this room and there's some people watching online. You've been there. You've been in a dark place and you've said, "Why, my God, where are you? But if you go back and read Psalm 22, what you'll find is he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've, I've gone down to the death. I've gone down to the pit. He, he goes through this darkness, but then he says, but you, your eyes never left me. Your eyes never left me. There was another time where Jesus was talking and they said, he said, there's coming a time where you'll see me no more. And I'm going to the cross to die. And you'll think that I'm going to be alone, but I'm telling you, I'm not alone because my Father is with me. You see Abraham and Isaac, where Isaac goes, hey, you'll see the wood, see the straw, where's the sacrifice? Abraham was well into his elderly years. Some scholars think Isaac was about 30. Isaac's in the prime of his life. You don't think that he could have overthrown Abraham? And as father and son, they go together and say, we'll do this. But Jesus tells us, the Father never left me. He never abandoned me. You may think I was alone, but I'm not alone. I'm not alone. And in your case, wherever dysfunction or darkness you're in, you may think God's looking away from you. You think He's turned His back on you. You think that He's abandoned you. And I want to tell you this morning, He does not do abandonment. He does not do abandonment. And you can stand with confidence this morning and say, you never left me. Your eyes never left me. Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you that you pursue us.